Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on Inside Politics, back on the stand, Donald Trump Jr. testifies for the defense in the New York civil fraud trial, describing his father as a, quote, artist with real estate who sees things that other people don't. Plus, a surprise dropout, Senator Tim Scott calls it quits, putting an end to his 2024 presidential campaign. So which of the seven remaining candidates will his voters go to or his donors? And sidestepping responsibility. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu refuses to answer our questions about whether he bears any blame for the Hamas terror attack inside Israel on October 7th, the deadliest attack on Jews since the Holocaust. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. We're going to start in New York City, where Donald Trump Jr. is on the stand as the first witness for the defense in the civil fraud case against his family and their businesses. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is outside the courthouse. Bryn, before we start about what's going on in that courthouse behind you, there's some sad news for the Trump family today. Yeah, that's right. The former president's oldest sister, Mary Ann Trump Barry, died today in New York. She was 86 years old, a former federal judge and prosecutor appointed to the federal district court in New Jersey in 1983. And then the third court of appeals appointed there by uh, President Bill Clinton in 1999 before retiring from the bench uh, in 2019. She had a very close relationship at times with uh, her younger brother, President Donald Trump, uh, taking, you know, often having guidance for him, but they did have a sort of, you know, their their relationship was impacted, I should say, when their niece released some audio recordings of Mary Ann Trump Barry talking about her older brother in a bad way in his last year of his presidency. So they did have a bit of a falling out, but still the oldest sister of the former president dying today in New York, 86 years old, Anna. And Bryn, there is this trial happening as we speak. Uh, in the courthouse there. Yeah. Donald Trump Jr. on the stand. What have we seen so far today? Yeah, so it's been an interesting day there in the court because we have been seeing a whole sort of summary of the assets of the Trump organization playing out in a promotional video. Uh, and we're still going through that video with Don Jr. on the stand. He called his father an artist when it came to real estate as they sort of go through each property uh, that they own. And the actually state's attorney objected to this video, saying even jokingly that this was outside the statute of limitations in this case. But the judge did allow 
allow this video to continue uh, to play, saying he's actually interested in it, but also he wants to make it clear that he's giving the defense enough time to present its case uh, because he doesn't want a reversal in this trial. He does not want a retrial. He wants to have uh, sort of fair on both sides. So that's where we're at right now with John Jr., the first witness in the defense uh, on the stand. Prior to this video actually playing, though, uh, we did hear about Don Jr.'s role within the Trump organization. He said when his father became president, he and his brother took on a role as sort of the asset managers. He took on the deal making of the the bigger picture deal making within the Trump organization while his brother handled uh, sort of the day to day. And it's been somewhat lighthearted inside that courtroom, Dana, with some jokes being made, not only by Don Jr., but also the judge. The judge saying to him, welcome back. And Don Jr. said he would say he's happy to be back, but he was, you know, worried about being sued by the attorney general uh, for being, uh, you know, perjury. So there's been some lighthearted moments. So listen, we haven't gotten into the nitty gritty of what this trial is about. Those financial statements that the state says they uh, manipulated to get better deals with banks and lenders. So we're waiting to see that testimony. But as of now, we're just learning more about the Trump organization with Don Jr., the first witness for the defense on the stand. Donna. Thank you so much for that reporting, Bryn. And on the campaign trail, former President Donald Trump compared the political left to, quote, vermin, as he promised to root them out of the country. The comment came during a Veterans Day rally in New Hampshire on Saturday. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. The threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. Joining me now to discuss this and much more, our panel of reporters, Carl Hulse of The New York Times, Jackie Kucinich of The Boston Globe, and CNN's Daniel Strauss, nice to see you all. Uh, okay, so let's start there uh, with where he uh, is. The former president didn't just do it in a rally. He was uh, very aggressive on his social media platform, again, through the prism of and in the context specifically of Veterans Day, uh, attacking the, quote, radical left as vermin and uh, comparing them to Marxists and fascists. So, you know, he's got all sides of the spectrum there. I mean... As I've watched the last few weeks, no one can accuse them of hiding their plans if he is uh, going to be reelected. The Times and others have done these pretty uh, substantial stories on what their uh, thinking is going forward. I mean, it was very out of the context. It was, it was wrong in that moment, obviously, for him to speak like that. But I think that we're just going to see this ratcheted up more and more and more. Yeah, I mean, th that's such a good point, is that they're not... The, the former president is, is not hiding what he says that he wants to do, not just when it comes to rhetoric and his political opponents, but also about the substance. Let's just talk for one more second, though, about his political opponents and the use of the term vermin. Um, we talked to historians like The Washington Post did, and we just need to say, for the record, that the term vermin was really effectively used by Adolf Hitler and by Mussolini to dehumanize people and encourage their followers to go after their opponents. 
I mean, <laughs> the truth is that Trump has had a great deal of success in trying to uh, rally uh, anger and um, sort of otherism to his side and to uh, use that as a tool to um, energize his supporters. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And But beyond that, though, this his remarks, using the word vermin, uh, and just the way he's run his campaign underscores that this campaign cycle is one that's going to be very negative. It is not going to be one that is about uh, hope and change and the political future. This is going to be one that is about attacking opponents, about highlighting and making voters feel that you are on their side with their grievances. Yeah, it's classic Donald Trump. He gets people motivated through grievances, through anger, through other, uh, and all of the above. I should say that the uh, Trump campaign through spokesman Stephen Chung said, quote, those who try to make that ridiculous assertion about uh, the notion of the, of the word vermin and what it means are clearly snowflakes grasping for anything because they are suf suffering from Trump derangement syndrome and their entire existence will be crushed when President Trump returns to the White House. So he's he's. Um, deflecting and confirming at the same time. As I say, that, la that last part of the sentence, I think, tells you everything you need to know. And we've just seen his rhetoric heighten and get worse throughout this cycle. There was a thought that maybe after January 6th, he'd moderate. That is long gone. That is so very far in the past. And the po politics of retribution um, are really a hallmark. And, you know, you've seen some of his political opponents, even on the right, try to say, you know, he's about the past. We're about going forward, but that message isn't seeming to land with the Republican base, which is you know, con continuing to fuel his rise um, you know, to the nomination. I asked uh, the Republican National Committee Chair, Ronna McDaniel, about these comments. I did it on State of the Union yesterday. Let's listen to that. How is that different from the now infamous deplorables comment that Hillary Clinton made. I'm not going to talk about candidates that are in a contested primary. That's you can talk but to you him can about what he's saying. You can talk to him about what he's saying. I, I haven't seen the whole speech. I mean, how many Republicans have you talked to in the hallways over the past what? How, how many years is it now? Uh, eight <laughs> years, nine, eight years, uh, where you said President Trump said X. Do you agree or do you not agree? And I haven't read it. I haven't heard. I it. haven't heard it. And so look, I mean. This is going to be legitimately so uh, the question that every Republican is going to have to answer for if Donald Trump still is, uh, well, he's the front runner, but if he actually becomes the nominee. Yeah, I, Trump does this stuff because it works. It does. If it didn't work, he wouldn't do it. He has said as much, you know, that he likes to stir things up. And I think that there are a lot of Republicans, especially after last week's election results, nervous about uh, this kind of language and on some of the issues and uh, but he is he is not going to stop because it's not it's he's solidifying his hold on the base it's not it's not hurting him you know um, as we kind of get closer to the first nominating contest and we see what really happens as we eventually get to a general election we're going to kind of just put a flag down now and say that nothing that Donald Trump says should surprise, surprise us at this point. And it doesn't. I mean, this doesn't surprise anybody. It's just a fact. And, it's, and we're reporting it as fact. Something else that maybe not is surprising beyond the rhetoric are the plans. And you were alluding to this, Carl, uh, a little while ago, 
which is, let's just focus on immigration. His immigration plans that was uh, first reported by the Times, CNN has confirmed. I'll give some examples. Large-scale arrests of undocumented immigrants, detention camps for migrants awaiting deportation, reinstate and expand that travel ban on predominantly Muslim countries, and then bring back COVID-era policy, Title 42, which, of course, is an immigration policy that was lifted because uh, the Biden administration sort of didn't see any health reason not to. I mean, <laughs> these are... Uh, these all harken back to some of the darker points in American history. But one thing we should always, always remember is that what we've learned since 2016 is that Trump laid out what he wanted to try and do as president. And he's doing that again here. Uh, shame on anyone who doesn't take him seriously or, or, that, or say that they are surprised by what he would do in office because if the voters believed him and knew, warts and all, what they were voting for in 2016, and he's making clear now what he would do in office again. And what Carl said is, is so key, which is it works. There is a, a very large part of the electorate uh, for whom this appeals to, not just the rhetoric, but the policy ideas. Well, right. But we also I, we should mention that his the the escalation of this rhetoric is directly proportional to the amount of legal jeopardy that he is in. And there is a means to an end of degrading the judiciary, which he has done throughout um, his first term and also going into this. And so you you th that's just I don't want to you know, stop this conversation without you can't separate that. Mm -hmm. And that is very much part of the plan here as well. And and the otherism and to to you know, make sure that his base is solidified against the fact that he is in very deep legal jeopardy and that he's just a victim here is what he's trying to present. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to expand the conversation about the 2024 race. Senator Tim Scott stuns Republicans, including and especially many on his own staff, by abruptly announcing that he is suspending his presidential campaign. So which remaining candidate will likely be his recipient of his support and the donors who are giving to him? That's coming up. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
I love America more today than I did on May 22nd. But when I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. I, I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me uh, not now, Tim. And then there were seven, as you just heard, Tim Scott dropped out of the 2024 Republican primary for president. He did that last night. That announcement you just heard surprised his donors and stunned many, I would even say most of his staff. I want to bring back our panel in on that. Um, Carl, was interesting that he did it with Trey Gowdy. Yeah. The two of them were, South were, Carolina. were besties from mm-hmm. South Carolina, very, very, very close friends. Um, what do you make of the fact that he decided to do it now? Let me just say that as you answer that question, I was in Miami last week for the debate, which turned out to be his last debate. There was no um, question in most people's mind, including privately people who work for him, that that would be his last debate. Maybe it's the timing of him doing it so quickly after that debate. I think the endorsements in Iowa were going against him, didn't leave him uh, much chance. I mean, the truth is that he was never going to be the nominee, right? He, He started out, and I think this... To me, it was always about raising his profile and honestly running for vice president, if that is a possibility, right, that he could be uh, that kind of candidate with Trump. And Trump never really went after Mm. uh, Senator, did he? So maybe he kept that uh, open. Uh, He'll be back in the Senate now voting, I guess. (laughs) So you'll see him soon. Uh, Let's look at who is still running. You see them there, Donald Trump, DeSantis, Haley, Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, and Asa Hutchinson, only the first one, two, three, well, Trump would have made the debate stage, but he didn't even get there or didn't want to go. So there were now four uh, who were on the debate stage. And just look at where the polling is. We kept Tim Scott in there just so you saw where he was. 3% um, higher, although it's within the margin, than Chris Christie uh, and and, uh, Asa Hutchinson. So he does have some support that is for the taking. True. Um, however, doesn't add up to it, Donald Trump. No, no, I mean, if you add everybody else up <laughs> I know. on the rest of the screen, it doesn't end, end up. That, that is the thing. Right now, it's still very much a, a fight for second place. You saw that on the debate stage just last week. And it looks like that going into this next debate in Alabama. And until someone can, it just it doesn't seem like someone is going to be able to boost themselves what, 20, 30 points to even get close to Trump. Even the, the consolidation theory is quickly going out the window. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and what ne- and what what needs to happen next? I mean, it's, it's, it's until these candidates start missing the debate stage, which is what Tim Scott was headed for, I, essentially. I went into journalism so I didn't have to do math. Exactly. But, but even that math is pretty easy <laughs> for me. Right. If you add all those up, it doesn't even come close to where Donald Trump is, all those meeting all of his opponents. Let's listen to what he said about endorsements. I'm going to recommend that the voters uh, study each candidate and their candidacies and, and frankly, their, their past and make the best decision for the future of the country. The best way for me to be helpful is to not weigh in on who they should endorse. I was not called to win, but I certainly was called to run. And I'll say this, uh, that being vice president has never been on my uh, to-do list uh, uh, for this campaign, and it's certainly not there now. But if he's asked. Yeah. I mean, you've heard that before. Yeah. Um, uh, look, <laughs> the, the, 
I find it interesting that he said that he's refraining from endorsing because there is a former governor on that stage who did give him his job uh, as senator mm -hmm. uh, initially and appointed him. And Nikki what's Haley. Clear, yeah, Nikki Haley. And what's clear coming out of this primary for uh, Senator Scott is that there is no love lost between those two after the fact, which is very strange because Scott is generally a, f a friendly person, generally universally loved on Capitol Hill. And, you know, this is politics. You know, that that might be true, that it, things got very icy between the two of them. But Reuters had a, a story that includes some reporting about the fact that his supporters, 3% of them or whatever they are right now, are likely to go to Haley. To Haley. Yep. In the moments after Scott dropped off, two major donors to his campaign told Reuters they would switch their support to Haley, who, like Scott, hails from the state of South Carolina. Among the donors that supported Scott are now, but are now switching to Haley's camp are Metals Magnet Andy Savin and New York-based litigator Eric Levine. Levine said he planned to host a fundraiser for Haley, and that is even before uh, what we're seeing Nikki Haley plan for now, which is a 10 million dollar new ad buy campaign in Iowa and New Hampshire. So some of the money people who were behind Scott certainly. Well, I mean, oh. they were obviously looking for an alternative to Trump and somebody with a different manner. So it makes sense they would go to go somewhere else. You know, I was thinking about endorsements. Uh, Scott was a handy uh, person to endorse for people on Capitol Hill who didn't want to get into the middle of this and like, mm -hmm. I'm endorsing my colleague, uh, Tim Scott, and they can't do that now. So. That is such a good point. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was an easy way out. Of course, I'm going to endorse the guy we all like, my colleague, uh, Tim Scott. Okay, everybody stand by. Up next, we're going to talk a lot more about your beat and your beat and probably for a time your beat, Capitol Hill, certainly mine. House lawmakers are back in D.C. to consider House Speaker Mike Johnson's two-step plan to avert a government shutdown. But are Republicans buying what he's selling? We're going to go live to Capitol Hill next. Oh, there's the clock. The all-too-familiar countdown clock, you see it right there. It's ticking down to zero as the GOP-controlled House. Will they pass a must must pass stopgap funding bill before Friday at midnight. There is, again, intra-party division over how to deal with a government shutdown, whether even to allow one. Some are saying yes. Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill with the latest. Manu, where is Speaker Johnson's effort right now when it comes to his own party? The same kind of challenge that Kevin McCarthy had a little more than a month ago. Yeah, and look, this is his first major decision as Speaker, and that decision was essentially to take on his right flank because he put out this spending bill that would not include any spending cuts, and that had been demanded by a number of members on the right, and that's one reason why we're seeing opposition growing on the right flank. Now, this is the question at the moment. How many Republicans in the House will vote against it, and then how many Democrats will vote for it? Because Democratic support will be absolutely essential here. That's But the question that remains is, is whether or not they will accept this approach that Johnson has proposed. It's a pretty unconventional way to fund the government. Typically, they fund government agencies along a straight extension. What he has decided to do is do it in two steps, fund part some of the federal agencies until mid-January, then other parts until early February. The reason, they believe it would help them strategically to advance some of their legislative goals. But that approach has been blasted by the White House, which calls it extreme, calls it a recipe for more chaos, and not saying yet if they would sign this into law if it lands on Joe Biden's desk. 
mask. On the other hand, Senate Democrats are sending a different message, a more openness to this approach because of the fact that it does not cut spending. And then the big question is, what will Hakeem Jeffries do, the Democratic leader in the House who has remained quiet on this issue so far? Will they supply the votes to carry it across the finish line? Dana, one big test will be tomorrow when they vote on the first procedural vote to set the parameters for floor debate. Typically, Democrats vote against that procedural vote, and typically Republicans vote for it. If more than three Republicans vote against that rule on the floor of the House, then it would require Democrats to carry it across the finish line. So those are the questions that are still remaining. But at the moment, because of the decision not to include spending cuts, the expectation is that they will get this over the finish line. It will be bumpy, but they could get there. The question, though, is what will the White House ultimately do? What will Democrats ultimately do? And how big is that opposition on the right? Dana. We've seen this movie before, Manu. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that reporting. And um, Daniel, I just want to put up some of the opposition that we are already seeing from within his own ranks, uh, Johnson's own ranks, Chip Roy, Bob Good, Warren Davidson, George Santos, Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Um, that's six. He can't afford, as Manu was just reporting, to lose even that uh, and not have Democratic support in order to, to get this forward. So there's, there are two questions. One is the substance, obviously. How do they avoid a government shutdown? Right. But the other is the politics and the maneuvering that he has to do in right. order to make that happen. Yeah, and this is the first real test we're gonna see of the new Speaker of the House. Uh, the fact that uh, shutdowns or the threat of shutdowns are something that we're incredibly used to now, and also some of the names you listed are familiar names in causing chaos within the Republican caucus. Actually, one of the names that I found interesting on that list was George Santos, who th who's been consistent in his support for Kevin McCarthy when McCarthy was Speaker. Uh, I am interested to see going forward where Congressman Santos is with this new speaker. Consistency in George Santos. Okay. Might be the only thing. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Jackie, I want you to listen to what uh, Maria Elvira Salazar said to Phil Mattingly this morning. The best thing that could have happened to the Republican Party is Mike Johnson because the, the job, a very big elephant, fell on his lap. And I know he's a decent guy, he's conservative, but he is reasonable. So don't, no criticism to Mike Johnson. He's doing the best he can with the tools he has been granted. I can't wait to see the cartoon of Mike Johnson, Johnson with the giant elephant yes. on his lap. I mean, it, it's, it is true, though. I mean, he, uh, he came out of nowhere, and here he is trying to steer the Republican Party right now because he's the only uh, leader of the Republican Party that actually has a majority. Through, his, through a completely self-inflicted problem. Uh, it's true, and it doesn't seem like anyone is rising up against him, at least that wants that job, because I mean, they don't want to be plunged into that particular chaos again. But in the process, I mean, he does need now need Democrats to get this across the line and thus is empowering them. I mean, this is a Democratic minority that really has been in a driver's seat, unlike most minorities get to yeah. because of what the, the Republicans inability to get their acts together. And Carl, we've seen some signals from Senate, yeah. Senate Democrats, rather, uh, that they will support this uh, plan that Mike Johnson has. So just to kind of recap, we have the new speaker <laughs> probably going down the exact same road that Kevin McCarthy did that 
caused him to lose his job and get overthrown. Just am I reading that right? But except he's splitting up the bills. That's the gimmick. Right? But just in terms of the process, <laughs> yeah, getting no, Democratic no, support. No, it's the exact same thing. Yeah, it's literally the same thing. This is a pretty good deal for Democrats. You know, I expect them to complain about it, say it's extreme, it causes chaos, but it's it's extending the spending that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden put in. This is what a lot of Republicans said they would never vote for to continue this level of spending. I think it'll, as Manu said, I think there'll be a lot of uh, turbulence, but they'll probably get it over the finish line. If not, but I don't think there'll be a move against yeah. Mike Johnson. No, not yet. Give him a little time. Thank you guys so much. Great conversation. Up next here, hospitals across Gaza are running out of electricity and supplies. Staff are working in dire conditions as the war rages right outside their doors. We're going to go live to Israel next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Israeli forces say they fired back at a group of Hamas terrorists embedded among the civilians at the entrance of a hospital in Gaza City today. They claim more than 20 terrorists were killed. CNN cannot confirm whether civilians were injured in that firefight, but it does come as Gaza's healthcare system is crumbling. And the video that you're about to see is from another hospital. It is quite disturbing. Doctors are running out of fuel, of water, and supplies. Now, the IDF says that they tried to deliver fuel to struggling patients, but it was Hamas who stopped the delivery. CNN's Oren Lieberman is in Tel Aviv. This is one of the most complicated parts of a very complicated story, Oren, right, which is that Israel says that Hamas has command and control underneath these hospitals and that they are the ones, Hamas, not letting their own civilians, the most sick, the most vulnerable, out. In fact, Prime Minister Netanyahu claimed in an interview that I did with him yesterday that they are trying to help the patients get out of these hospitals. Israel said it's, it's opened up evacuation corridors from the hospitals. Shifa Hospital, the largest in Gaza, uh, where there is a tremendous amount of fighting, and Israel has carried out strikes and operations very close to the hospital, as well as two other hospitals. There have been tens of thousands we've seen in recent days leaving North Gaza and Gaza City and heading south. What's unclear, though, is how many have left the hospitals themselves. These hospitals, which are supposed to be sanctuaries from the fighting, have become shelters as people try to find a safe place. Shifa Hospital itself, in addition to struggling to treat 650 or so patients in the hospital, has thousands of Gazans taking shelter there. It's unclear if they've been able to evacuate. Many of them who we've spoken to simply feel too terrified to leave the hospital. In terms of the Al-Quds Hospital, that's the second largest in Gaza. That already shut down its medical services over the weekend. As you point out, Israel says 
There were Hamas militants embedded in the civilian population there, and that led to a firefight. The Palestine Red Crescent Society says there was a Red Cross convoy that tried to leave the hospital, but had to turn back because of Israeli bombardment in the area. So this just gets at how difficult it is to leave what is very much the middle of a war zone with ongoing active fighting. Israel trying to move sh uh, closer to Shifa Hospital, which it sees as one of the hubs of Hamas's operation there. It's just so heartbreaking, and that really is a key part of the story that uh, Israel does see the, these hospitals, especially Al-Shifa, as uh, a place where Hamas is set up. Uh, thank you so much for that, Oren. Appreciate that reporting. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is refusing to answer questions about whether he will take any responsibility for failing to prevent the October 7th attack. Here's what happened when I asked him about that on State of the Union yesterday. This whole question will be addressed after the war, Why just as people now? would ask. Well, did people ask Franklin Roosevelt after Pearl Harbor that question? Did people ask George Bush after the surprise attack of November 11th? Look, it's a question that needs to be asked. I think and those these questions, questions were will be asked. asked. And I've said and I've said I've said that one, one thing that is important is and I've said we're going to answer all these questions. To right? Israelis to who are Again. disappointed that you still won't take responsibility, you say? Well, I said that I'm going to answer all the questions that are required, including the questions of responsibility. There'll be enough time for that after the war. Joining me now is Yaakov Katz. He's a columnist and former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. Uh, Yaakov, thank you so much for joining me. How did that play in Israel? Look, Israelis, we're not surprised. We give you a lot of credit, Dana, for, for trying to get the prime minister to take responsibility, but he won't do it, right? Israeli journalists have asked him, you've asked him, other reporters have asked him. He won't do it, and I think there's two reasons why. First is, I don't think he believes that he's responsible. Uh, as we saw just about two weeks ago in the middle of the night, as Israeli special forces were going into Gaza to rescue an Israeli female soldier who had been taken hostage, it was exactly at that same time on a Saturday night two weeks ago that he decided to tweet the heads of the Shabak, Israel's internal security agency, the head of military intelligence, never told me, he said, that uh, that Hamas was going to war. They had always told me that Hamas was deterred. How do you do that in the middle of the night when Israeli special forces are going to risk their lives mm. in a very complicated operation? So he won't. He thinks that, A, he's not responsible, but B, is he gives us insight in his inability to answer the question and to take responsibility means that he sees a day after for himself here. And he sees that his political career is not over, even despite the tragedy of what happened here on October 7th. Yeah, that is such an important point, particularly the last one, because it's been a big question whether or not he can politically survive after the war. And he, as you said, um, clearly believes that he, he can find a way to do that. The other uh, one of the other things that uh, we talked about that was really interesting and newsworthy was what happens after the war inside Gaza. And he had said to some press at a press conference over the weekend there in Israel that he he alluded to the Palestinian Authority as not being capable. I pressed him uh, on that. And here's what that conversation looked like. If not the PA, well, it has to be a. There has to be a reconstructed civilian authority. There has to be something else. Otherwise, we're just falling into that same uh, rabbit hole. And we're going to have the same result. Remember, the PA was already in Gaza. When Israel left Gaza, it handed the keys over to the PA. And what happened? Within a very short time, Hamas took over. I mean, it is a really 
important question is, uh, if not the Palestinian Authority, and that's a big if, then who? If, if and when uh, Israel is successful at rooting out Hamas inside Gaza, who will be in charge? Well, this is one of the big questions, Dana, of what's going to happen the day after. What's the end mechanism for this war? Because you can only achieve some of your goals through military means. You also need to have some, port, so, some sort of dipl diplomatic resolution or political resolution to what's happening on the ground. Israelis who I talk to who hold out for some hope of the, some Saudi, Egyptian, Jordanian, American initiative or replacement inside Gaza, the, you know, the proof that I look at that that's not possible is show me one Arab country that's opened its borders for the Palestinians who've been displaced inside Gaza. No one wants them. Yeah. So we expect the Saudis to send people into Gaza. That's not going to happen. And when the prime minister told you that he wants to see some civilian authority, well, there is one. It's called the Palestinian Authority. Now, the, what I look at and what I heard the prime minister's answer, I actually didn't hear the no. I heard the how it is possible. What did he outline for you? He said if they were... He said that we can't allow them because of because they uh, pay salaries to terrorists. We can't allow them because they incite in their education system. What does that mean? If they were to stop all that, then maybe then we could allow them to, to yeah. come into Gaza. Yeah. So there is maybe so a method for how this is possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't look at it that way. He, he provided a roadmap for the Palestinian Authority to get back into power. Thank you so much, Yaakov. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. And still ahead, the latest on New York Mayor Eric Adams after FBI agents seized his phones and an iPad as part of an investigation into campaign fundraising. What's Adams' next move? We'll tell you next. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says he will answer questions from reporters tomorrow as he faces growing scrutiny over links between the Turkish government and his campaign. Adams says he is cooperating with investigators after a New York, the New York Times revealed that he's under federal, uh, under investigation rather for federal corruption. I want to bring in CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller, who was deputy commissioner of the NYPD and served under Mayor Adams. And John left in July of 2022, is here with us now. John, what are you hearing from your sources? Well, it's an interesting case. Uh, it comes in basically three parts. The first part is the campaign finance fraud. Did Turkish businessmen and others in New York get their employees and friends to give contributions to the Adams campaign, which were then paid back to the donors, which has implications not just by creating straw donors and giving uh, money to the campaign, but also the city uh, supplies matching funds. So it's defrauding the taxpayers and filling the campaign coffers. That's part one of what they're looking into, which is why they searched the apartment, uh, the home rather, of the head of the campaign, uh, Adams' re-election campaign uh, finance director. Part two is, if they can prove that case, what did the mayor know? When did he know it? Was he aware of it? Does it touch him? And did he receive any other personal benefit um, beyond the, co the campaign contributions, which leads to part three, Donna, which is this foreign influence piece. Part of the federal investigation looks into, was this just local Turkish businessmen trying to help um, a politician that they liked very much? Or was there the hand of the Turkish government, as we saw in the Menendez case, where they alleged, you know, officials of the Egyptian government right. were trying to influence the senator? Is there a foreign influence piece going on behind the curtain? And 
John, what do you make of the fact that law enforcement officials confiscated his devices and did it in such a public way? Well, I think it's significant. Um, it's significant because you don't just go and grab the phones of the mayor of the largest city in the United States uh, because you need it for the case. It means they had to fill out an affidavit under oath and bring that to a federal judge that showed probable cause to believe that there was evidence in those electronic devices of a crime. And it's not the kind of thing that a federal judge is going to sign lightly. So it had to be, um, one would argue, a convincing case. And how serious could it be for him, the, the mayor, if it is true that he pressured FDNY officials to override red tape, ignore safety concerns? Not that serious. Mm. Frankly, as the Brooklyn Borough president, even though the place that was under construction was in Manhattan, um, that's what borough presidents do. You know, according to the city charter, their job is to make sure they maintain an accurate map of their borough. The rest is constituent work, which is people call and they say they need favors. The question isn't, did he get the thing done? Um, the question is, did he get something in return for it? And so far, he has not been accused of that. John Miller, thank you so much for your reporting, for your analysis, for your expertise. Always good to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Dana. And thank you for joining Inside Politics. CNN News Central starts after the break. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.